definitely different. Uh, thankful the, I could hear the ladies singing today. Could you hear them? That was because the speakers are in front of them now, and they can turn it up the right amount. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, very thankful for the little things that the Lord is doing. I'm thankful for those that worked last night until 1230 uh, this morning, matter of fact, and it's those kinds of acts of those acts of kindness that often go unnoticed. We're just very thankful for you guys that helped and all the people that were helping. I'm very, very thankful for you. One of them is a, a huge uh, Alabama Crimson Tide fan too, and he gave up watching his game yesterday to work here. Um, uh, <laughs> they they did fine though they they dominated so they told him he got a blessing anyway so I'm just I'm just so thankful for this church we are blessed people aren't we um, thankful for what the Lord is doing in our midst last week we began to answer from our passage some questions what do we say to a world that is dying and going to hell. And how do we approach people who think very different than us when they have a different worldview? How do we uh, approach them? Today we're going to continue to look at this and see that we must speak the truth in love to the lost world. This is done by confronting wrong worldviews and calling for repentance. This is what we do as believers. This is what Paul does in Acts 17 in this masterful sermon. Last week we saw... The passage breaks down in 1722 to 34 into four main sections, the setting for the sermon, the introduction to the sermon, and the body of the sermon in verses 24 to 31, and then the response to the sermon. We started with the setting for the sermon, and we saw that there were two groups of Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were like the selfish, secular hedonists of our day seeking selfish pleasures with no regard for God. The Stoics were the naturalists of our day, or somewhat like our day, the tree-huggers who reject any sovereign authority over them. They, and by the way, that was kind of tough, but it's the truth. If we're all about nature to the exception of God, there's a problem. He made it, right? They were always promoting uh, self-discipline for the purpose of self-promotion. These two groups of philosophers we always, were always listening but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul steps up to speak the truth to these lost people. He didn't use philosophies of men. He speaks the truth of God. He doesn't quote chapter and verse. He just speaks special revelation in a perfect exposition of the entire Bible. It's amazing. He speaks with wisdom and grace and compassion and boldness and accuracy, and he's confrontational, as we will see again today. Next, we saw the introduction of the sermon. Paul spoke in a way to gain his audience's attention. He was respectful but uncompromising. He spoke with respect and truth and gentleness but accuracy. Paul highlighted their wise wants, their right desires. Paul noted that they were diligent to pursue worship, 
But then he explained that they were seeking the wrong God. He showed their ignorance of the one true God by their altar to the unknown God. We saw that, right? And so in Paul's introduction, he introduced the unknown God who is also known by them. Again, God was known within them because God made it evident to them through general revelation. But God was unknown in a saving way because they were dead in their sin and needed to repent and believe. They knew God existed, but they had rejected Him and made gods in their own mind. Therefore, they needed a special revelation of God. And Paul was there to give it to them. So next we start, started the body of the sermon last week. Notice in verse 24, this is the special revelation of God. And it states, this I proclaim to you, in verse 24, the God who made the world and all that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath, and all things. This is where we started last week. We saw the body of the sermon. The known but unknown God. And we saw last week first that He was, or that He's revealed as God is the Creator. Look at verse 24. God made the world and all that things in it. Next we saw that God is Lord over all. It says He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And third, we saw God is bigger than humanity's imagination. Notice it says, God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. God is transcendent. He is far beyond our human imaginations. He's much bigger than anything that we could come up with in our own minds. We often try, or the humanity especially, tries to put God in a box. They try to figure God out. And God is not to be put in a box. God is much bigger than our boxes. God is far beyond humanity's imagination. God does not need, in light of that, humanity. Notice it says, as though he needed anything. Do you understand? God does not need you, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't need you to give him something. He doesn't need your funds. They're his funds anyway. God does not need us. Last week I closed with an illustration of a religion that believes God is served with human hands and needs us to do something for him to accept us. I was approached afterwards by a visitor who said, I offended him because I suggested most of the Roman Catholics were not saved. I think it's important for me to carefully explain something to you all. I want you to understand why I said what I said. First, any religion that makes human accomplishment the way to be delivered from sin is making a God that needs humanity. Do you understand? We can't do this, beloved. Our works are filthy rags in the sight of God. Everything that we do good outside of Christ is useless. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3. It was actually quoted in Sunday school this morning by Brad. Philippians 3, 2. Paul gives an example here of works righteousness 
a, a false religion. Judaizers were probably who he was talking to. And the Roman Catholics of today as a whole are the Judaizers of Paul's day. And notice how he warns them. And by the way, he warns them. He warns them, doesn't he? He doesn't stop. He, he tells them. And he's pretty direct, isn't he, in verse 2? Beware of the dogs. That's not a kind statement. But beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the fle- even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from who? God, on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Look, Paul is very crystal clear. Righteousness comes from God alone through faith in Christ alone. Remaining, meaning that nothing else matters but Christ and believing in Him. But the, the Roman Catholics say the opposite. Look, specifically, Canon 9 of the Council of Trent. They stick to this. They believe in this. They say this. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. That's clear, isn't it? That is very clear. There's no other way around it. There are countless other ones. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, in number 1992, justification is conferred in baptism. No. No, by being baptized, you are not justified before God. In 2016, number 2016 from the Catechism, the children of our Holy Mother, the church, rightly hope for the grace of final perseverance and the recompense of God, their Father, for the good works accomplished with His grace in communion with Jesus. No, the opposite is true. This is all false. Now, I, need, I was asked, can a person be a part of the Roman Catholic Church and not believe what the... Roman Catholics teach and therefore be saved. Well, obviously, God can regenerate a person while they're reading the Bible, the gospel. And they can be a part of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of their conversion. Because as they're reading their Bible, 
It doesn't say what the priest is saying. And they're reading it. Wait, there's something wrong. And they can get converted because the word of God is powerful. Therefore, yes, a person can be saved while in the Roman Catholic Church. But as they come to the awareness of the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, they will be moved by the Holy Spirit to abandon that wrong doctrine and look for the true church. Turn with me in your Bibles over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This verse, these verses are striking. They are profound. John chapter 10, verse 2. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about the contrast between his sheep and other sheep, and he's talking about ways that his sheep follow him. Notice in verse 2, it says, But he who enters by the door as a shepherd of the sheep, to him the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his, what? Voice. And a stranger, look at this verse, it's shocking. And a a stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the stranger. That's profound, isn't it? Do you understand what that means? That means that his sheep follow him because we know his word. We know the truth. We know that our hope is in Christ alone. But those that don't, and they teach a false doctrine, what do believers do? What do sheep do? They don't follow a stranger. Why don't they follow a stranger? Because they, I don't know that voice. It doesn't make sense. It's backwards. So people leave. If somebody's staying in that, we should warn them. We should call them. Wait, do you understand that that's a false voice? And if they don't know it's a false voice, what does that mean? They're not a sheep yet. So we give them the gospel. The fact is, a regenerate believer knows the shepherd's voice. And they follow the shepherd's voice. Look at verse 27 of chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Praise God. Isn't that great doctrine? Great truth. Those that know Christ stay with Christ. And they depend upon Him. They persevere to the end. Why? Because God is working. And He gives us discernment. The Spirit is all about sanctifying His children. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Our sanctification is based on a correct understanding of justification. Our sanctification is based on a proper understanding of our union with Christ. So in other words, we won't be set apart by God unless we understand that we're only set apart by God because God declared us right with Him. It's the only way. 
If I'm trying to work my way to heaven, I've missed justification altogether. And we are actually making a God in our own mind that what? Needs us. Needs us. Same thing Paul said. So, the Spirit will work in His children to cause them to seek the truth. And the truth will lead them to leaving these false churches. Could this apply to some Protestant churches today? Absolutely. Churches that are teaching a wrong doctrine of salvation. Yes. I believe there are many lost people in Joel Osteen's church, just being honest. Many lost people there. Many of them are basing their salvation on a wrong view of Christ. Both places are scary places to be. Wouldn't recommend anybody go to either one of them. Now, can I say emphatically that every single person that goes to Joel Osteen's church is lost? No. I can't look into the hearts of every single person. That's not where I'm at. And that Bible doesn't tell us to do that. But I can tell you Scripture explains what true believers trust in and how true believers look if they have genuine faith. Right? That's what the Bible says. First John, very clear. So it is not my purpose to elevate myself over Joel Osteen or the Pope. Y'all know this. It's not my purpose to exalt my sermons over theirs. It's not an attempt to condemn people because they disagree with me. The Apostle Paul wasn't trying to condemn them to elevate himself, was he? In Athens, was he preaching that sermon to say, I'm better than the Athenians? It's not what he's doing. Apart from the saving grace of God, I am Joel Osteen or the Pope. I know that. Fully aware of that. My purpose is to appeal to the authority of Scripture. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Athens. He appeals to the truth of Scripture. It's everything. We are called to tolerance with preferences, but we are not called to tolerance with doctrine. We're not called to a doctrine of salvation in God. If we're tolerant on that, we're actually leading people astray. We can't be this way. This is what Paul's doing. Almost every point of his sermon in Acts 17, almost every point, confronts the people he's talking to. You understand that? He's saying the opposite of what they believe in almost every point. He doesn't say to them, well, who I am, who, are, who am I to judge whether your God is right or not? I just want to have a good dialogue with you. That's <laughs> not what he does. He does the opposite. He doesn't tell them, well, you're pretty religious, so maybe you have some of it correct. You're partially correct. No. No, you have a wise desire. You want to worship. And that ended the affirmation. Then it was, you're ignorant. You don't know the truth. Your God is the opposite of everything you think. These gods are false. Beloved, if we know people are dead in sin and following false God, we can't be silent. We cannot be silent. If we are silent because we might offend them, we are hurting and hating the people we're being silent to. We can't do that. These Athenians rejected the one creator God. They rejected a a personal creator God. 
They rejected a God that did not need humanity, or they accepted a God, gods that needed humanity, but they rejected a God that didn't need humanity. They rejected a God who sustained life. They thought they were part of sustaining life. Paul very clearly lays out in 192 words everything they said about their gods were wrong. That's what he told them. It took 192 words to tell them, you know what? Everything you think, the opposite is true. That's what he said. Is confrontation a bad thing? No, it is the most loving thing you can do if somebody is dead in sin. Now, did Paul say it with respect and honor for those he was speaking to? Absolutely. Yet, as we see, Paul unashamedly proclaimed who God is and what he requires. Notice, fourth, God is the sustainer of life. God is the sustainer of life. Notice in your passage in verse 25, since God gives life and breath and all things... At this point, Paul continues his exaltation of the bigness of God. God is the giver of life at the start of life. He's the giver of breath that sustains life during life. He's the giver of everything on the earth. God is not a part of life and a part of all things as the Stoics thought. He wasn't, he's not a pantheistic God. He's the giver of life. God is not just a little bit of the creation. He is much bigger than the creation. He created it and he sustains it. As Hebrews 1.3 states, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I watched a little video this week, it's going around on Facebook, but some of you might have seen it, that tried to explain just how big the universe is. And for a phrase that says, since God gives life, breath, and all things, if you think about what the all things is, it's stunning. To just give you an idea of how big our creation is, this this video is staggering. The largest sun that astronomers have found in the universe is called... Canis Majoris, to give you an idea of just how big it is. Just a a small glimpse of how big this creation is that God made, the universe. If we could get into a plane and fly around the surface of this megastar at 560 miles an hour, how how long do you think it would take you to get around it? This one star, one star, 1,100 years 1,100 years! 560 miles an hour in a plane flying around, just one time around, 1,100 years. That's one star. One dot in the sky. A, A side note for God in His creation. In the creation account in Genesis 1, and He made the stars too. And he made Canis Majoris too. Do you understand? I don't even think you can see it. Do you see the size of the earth compared to the sun? It's that little dot there. See the dot? Right there. 
Little dot, okay? You ready? Watch this. That's our sun compared to Canis Majoris. He made all things. I think he's much bigger than our mind. What do you think? Far beyond our imagination. And God sustains this whole universe. God is ridiculously powerful, isn't he? His power and his bigness is beyond our comprehension. He created the whole universe in an instant. He sustains every orbit of every star and planet and moon in the entire universe right now. And he does not exert any. It's not laborious to him. He holds the whole universe together by the word of his power. Do you understand? He speaks stars like this into existence. How in the world could we ever think that anything we could do could somehow merit this God's praise? How? Do you understand how foolish that is? To think that God needs us. It it almost makes me laugh. It's hysterical to think that somehow... Me doing some kind act is going to somehow, God's going to say, come on up, way to go. (laughs) The more we know the magnitude of the creation, the more we see his general revelation, We should all just fall on our faces. We we should be all crawling out of this place just in contemplation of him. Do you understand? That we're even able to sit in our chairs without ducking is staggering. But it's because our minds are corrupted so bad by sin, we ignore it. We suppress it. And we actually make a God that thinks he needs us. Are you kidding? The Athenians had a much smaller glimpse of the general revelation of God than we do. The more we learn about the size of the universe and the greatness of the creation, the more accountability there is. It screams God is big. But, God, but Paul still starts with that foundation of God's revelation revealed in creation. The creation screams how big God is. Next notice, Paul states, God ordained the rise of every nation. The rise of every nation. He starts with the genesis of nations. God created every nation of mankind from one man. Notice it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Paul did not give philosophical proofs for the existence of God to to the atheistic Stoics. He just assumes the existence of God. Paul also boldly proclaims the Creator's position as God. Paul assumes that Genesis 1 and 2 are what? Truth. 
He says, from one man every nation came. For the Greeks, it would have been repulsive. The Athenians hated this idea that they came from the same place that that Jew Paul came from? You're kidding me, right? You're kidding. That's what they would have thought. They, they considered their origin as a nation as different from others, that they came from something of a higher group. Maybe even the gods had placed the Greeks on the earth separately. They were a higher class people. So when Paul says, nope, we all came from Adam or one man, he's basically confronting them with their pride and their arrogance and their nationalistic tendencies to think that there's something great or better than other nations. He says, no, we all came from one man. And he assumes Genesis 1. As we've said numerous times, confrontation of a person's wrong worldview is not judgment. It is loving, however, when we offer hope. And that's what he's going to do here. He's saying, look, no, no, we came from one man. And all the nations were ordained by God from one man. We're, nobody in this room's better or, you know, higher. We all came from Adam. That's who we are. And he's confronting them with their pride. The doctrine of God is not always attractive to man, is it? This is because mankind makes gods that exalt themselves. But we are responsible to proclaim the big God that Scripture reveals. And as we see here, God exalted is exalted as enormous, and mankind is given its proper position as the creation. Observe next, God has sovereignly established the rise of every nation. It says, having determined there the nations, appointed times, and their boundaries of habitation. God has ordained every nation's appointed times and their borders. This is, again, an overwhelming truth especially in light of the numerous nations and borders and changes over the roughly 6,000 years since creation. We know for a fact that God had determined the rise and fall of the Greek empire, didn't he? The Greeks that he's talking to, Paul knew his Bible. He knew Daniel. He knew that Daniel had told, prophesied, that there would be a rise after Babylon, uh, Babylon, Then when the Medo-Persians would come, and after the Medo-Persians would come, then the Greeks would come, and then after the Greeks would come, Rome. He knew those prophecies. Paul understood very clearly what? God ordains the rise and fall of every nation. He's sovereign over every one of them. One thing we see here is Paul doesn't skate the sovereignty of God, does he, in his, in his sermon? Matter of fact, he's very clear. God, their nation, these nations were appointing times. God determined their appointed times. What does this say? God is sovereign over every nation. Their border, how long they live, how long they maintain. He's sovereign over their kings. He's sovereign when they go down and when they rise up. This is God. He's sovereign. And he's saying this in his evangelistic sermon. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean we should speak about the sovereignty of God in our evangelistic sermons? Yeah. Absolutely, he did. 
He's talking to people that have a wrong view of God. What is the biggest wrong view of God? People don't believe God is sovereign over them. That he is Lord. And by the way, that is the one thing everybody in this world hates the most. That God is in control of me. But we, he spoke it. He's clear, isn't he? He doesn't shy away from the hard doctrines. God's sovereignty over everyone and everything. Remember, this is an evangelistic encounter. These people did not read the scriptures. They did not have a proper understanding of God at all. And Paul gives them a theology lesson in his gospel presentation. This is a doctrinal, loaded theological lesson in 192 verses or 192 words. It's, It's shocking. Notice next, we see Paul explains the purpose God made mankind. God has made humanity to pursue him. Notice that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. God made man to seek God and to have relationship with God. But Paul implies in this little verse that sin hinders our ability to know and enjoy Him. God desires to have relationship with His creation. He made us to pursue Him and find our satisfaction in Him. He revealed the the revealed will of God for humanity is that we would seek and be satisfied and worship God. But our sin keeps us from knowing and enjoying Him. We are spiritually blind but made with an inner desire to worship. Do you understand that's who you're talking to? Every single human being you talk to on this planet has a desire to worship. They do have that desire, but they're blind to see who they should worship and, in fact, reject the one that they should be worshiping. Instead, say, no, I want to make up a God that I can worship because then he will accept me. Paul is confronting the Athenians' high view of themselves and their own wisdom. He's saying, in effect, look, God is immense, yet He's also close, as we will see. But the inability of humanity keeps them from seeking God. Notice next, God is imminent, imminent. The end of verse 27 and then the beginning of verse 28, He says, Though He is not far from each of us, each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. Oh, folks, this is is just glorious news that God is so big that if we got on a plane and flew around it, it'd take us 1,100 years to get around that one star, but he's also intimately acquainted with every single detail of every single thought of every single person all the time. He knows every thought in your heart. God is not distant and uninvolved in this creation as the Epicureans claimed. He's saying, no, 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 no. God is intimately aware of every thought you have. You move and live and exist in Him. As Jeremiah 2 or 23, 23 states, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a guard God far off? Can man, a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? The implied answer is what? No, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens of the earth? <laughs> yeah, you're bigger than the whole universe. And this is, you've got the paradox right there. 
You have both his eminence that he's right there with you, yet he's far larger than anything you can comprehend. He's transcendent. God is intimately aware of every single detail of your life. Do you understand this is, this is shocking? Every thought. Some of you right now might be drifting and not thinking about the sermon. He already knows that. I can't know it. I look out and I see your eyes. You look like you're engaged. But y'all can look at me with a blank stare. But he knows what's going on in your mind. He knows right now what you're thinking. He knows if you're thinking about your workplace. He knows everything right now. All of it. He knows the very first words out of your mouth before at the end of the service. He already knows it. Every thought of every human, all seven billion of us, on the entire planet, he knows everything right now, already known. That is a God that's much bigger than we can comprehend, isn't he? It doesn't fit in a box. And yet he's intimately involved in every one of our lives, living and moving, working within us. He holds the whole entire universe in his all-powerful, sovereign hands. This truth is overwhelming, isn't it? God is bigger than the entire universe. He is independent of the universe. He is not bound by the universe or the creation. He needs nothing. He is sovereign over even the minutest details of every event. And at the same time, he is also involved in even the smallest details of the planet. Do you understand? He knows when every single ant dies. He knows when every bird falls from the sky. He knows every word before it's spoken. Every act of humanity takes place in his full awareness and involvement. That's what it means. He lives and moves. Everything is in him and he's in control of it all. Is there any other God we should worship? Should we at any time think that that God needs me? Say anything else is total blasphemy. This was a God that none of the Greeks had ever been introduced to. They didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. It confronted everything they thought about God. He is both huge and intimately involved. This truth should be enough to silence every person in the entire world, shouldn't it? But sin is so blinding. It's so blinding. Notice this next point, though. Paul goes even further. He said, God is the father of all. God is the father of all. Notice the second half of 28. In him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children, being then the children of God. This is such an intriguing concept to me, as introduced by Paul. God is the originator of all mankind. He's already said that, but he's going to develop it some now here. He gets our genesis, we get our genesis, our beginning in him. We are all God's descendants. This is important. Now, that doesn't mean we're deity. Be careful. Don't think that. That's not what I'm saying. 
But we get, we are God's offspring through Adam. This is an affirmation that God considers even unbelievers his offspring. Now, I want you to listen closely to this. In a sense, all of humanity, our children, every person on the planet is a child of God, in a sense. We're children of God. How? Through Adam, through the creation, we're all offspring of God. So what does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. If you're an offspring of somebody, what are you supposed to do to the one that you're an offspring of? Honor. Respect. This is what the conscience says. Let me ask you a question. Are you, aren't children born knowing through their conscience and taught that they're supposed to do what to their parents? Honor and respect them. With an understanding of us being God's offspring, when he says this to the Athenians, he's basically saying, do you understand with that? It comes automatically accountability. You must respect and honor the one who made you and who you come from. Now, there are two different concepts of being a child of God. We all know this, right? One is associated with being an image bearer at creation. Everybody is an image bearer. Every single human on the planet is an image bearer. We're all offspring of God. But second, the idea is that of being children in Christ, his adopted children through Christ's saving work. Not everybody's that. Paul is pointing to the first concept here. This concept carries with it again a great responsibility. Being God's children in Adam means we are required to honor God and respect Him. So again, Paul has painted a portrait of God, hasn't he? Think of this portrait that he's painted. It's amazing, isn't it? It's beautiful. To summarize, he says this, God is the Creator. He's created all. God is Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign and Lord over everything. God transcends. He's beyond our full experience. He's far beyond us. God is independent. He doesn't need anything. God is a sustainer of all things. He gives life and breath in all things. God is the creator of all humanity. God is sovereign over all nations. He raises up and puts down kings and kingdoms. God has, should be sought by his creation. And God is imminent. He is intimately involved in his creation. And God is father of all through Adam. What a sermon, right? <laughs> wow! 192 verses or words. He says all that. This discourse confronted, like I said, almost every false philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics. So now Paul ratchets it up another knot. And we turn to the confrontation of their sinful direction. Their confrontation of their sinful direction. Notice verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or a bread wafer. He didn't say that. But there's something there. An image formed, that was application. An image formed by the art and thought of man. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men or to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Being God's offspring, being sovereign, the sovereign's children, being the Lord of heaven and earth's descendants, idolatry must be eliminated. It must be stopped. God is not made of gold, silver, or stones. Do you understand that? And I know I'm picking on them, but I don't... I'm sorry, it's the truth, it's our environment, it's what we see. He is not a bread wafer. He's not that. To say that is idolatry. He's not gold, silver, or stone. It's not something that we make with our hands. God is not an image formed by the art and thought of man. Shame on us to even think something close to that. God must not be recreated as man in our own image. God is God. The all-powerful, all-sovereign God. The one true God that we should all serve and worship is not created by human minds. Yet this is exactly what the world does, doesn't it? Even today. We make a Jesus in our own mind. Humanity makes gods that it can please, that will be pleased by what they do, by their so-called religious acts. So Paul calls for a repentance. God had put up with the foolishness of humanity for years. God had put up with their ignorance for 4,000 years. God had previously passed over the times of agnosticism. Or ignorance. But God was now making appeal through Paul to repent and be reconciled to God. Turn from this wrong thought of God and embrace the one true God. The creator of all things and sustainer of life. Paul declared to all men that all people everywhere should repent. And as we've seen in Acts numerous times, a revelation of God requires a change of heart. It requires a change of mind. It requires a change of commitment. It requires a change of direction. Repentance, this is what's required. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know you're not in glorified bodies. You still live in these bodies of death. And if that be so, repentance better still be a common practice in your life. Because the reality is that these bodies of death that we carry around are still prone to elevate everything except for the one true God. And most of the time, it's yourself. It's who we are. In Christ, we're not. But our body of death calls for repentance. This word repentance is both the worst and best word in the world to hear, isn't it? How many of you love to hear the word repentance? Sometimes. <laughs> How many of you love to hear your wife tell you, you need to repent? <laughs> Never. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> right? Isn't that the way we are? It is both the best and worst word repentance because it calls for us to recognize our own ignorance and our own sin 
calls us to say, do you understand you're wrong? <laughs> Anybody like to be told you're wrong? Raise your hand if you'd like to be told you're wrong. But that's what's involved in repentance. You must understand you're wrong. You're going the wrong direction. That's, what, that's why it becomes, it can be classified as a bad word, an ugly word, but it's a beautiful word. It's the best word because it offers a new direction with hope. If we are born again, it is our favorite word when we're in Christ because it offers us hope of forgiveness for sin. It offers us peace with God. It offers us enjoyment with Him. Repentance is a beautiful word, isn't it? For all of us who are regenerate, it's a beautiful word. For the one that's an unregenerate, the word repentance sounds like taking your fingers and running them across a chalkboard. No! I don't want to hear that I'm wrong. This is why it's an act of God that people are saved. No one embraces repentance without God. Nobody says, oh, yeah, I want to turn and embrace God. Yes, I'm a full-fledged sinner, and there's nothing good I've ever done that God would accept. Nobody says that except a work of God's grace. But notice Paul says what the reason for repentance is in verse 31. He states, Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And there it is. That's the end of the sermon. I don't know about you guys, but a little anticlimactic. Give me a little more on Jesus. Tell me about his death, burial, and resurrection. Give me a little bit more, right? No. Because the reality is this. Most of their hearts were cold towards God. And as soon as he mentions one thing, that was it. It wasn't necessarily the repentance, however, I think that it is associated. It's all in the same sentence. He's saying, You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you must turn. Why should you turn? Why should you turn? Well, because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming through one man. One man who died and rose from the dead. You've lost your mind, Paul. That's what they say. You're crazy. And they began to sneer. But Jesus is that perfect judge. He's the perfect righteous judge. He is worthy of judgment and judging others. Why? Why is he worthy of that position of judge? Because he was perfectly righteous in every way. And though he was tempted in all ways, he did not sin. Not once. And he died. And he rose from the dead showing what? That he was the just righteous judge. The resurrection screams, Jesus deserves to be the judge of the world. That's what the resurrection screams. Why? Because the resurrection says he did what nobody else can do. He gets it. Nobody else gets it. He's perfect. Nobody else is perfect. He's the judge. So obviously Paul did not 
appear to get all the gospel presentation out. Yet, with these words, we get a snapshot of Christology, all in these few words. Jesus is judge. Jesus is from God. Jesus will judge in the end. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is Lord and must be turned to and embraced because He is worthy of judging the world in righteousness. There's only one name. There's only one man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Isn't this a masterpiece of a sermon? Mm. Unbelievable what Paul did. God is good, isn't he? God uses the most vilest of sinners. Remember, this is the same Paul at the beginning of Acts. The same man that was persecuting the church and hunting them down. Oh, what a glorious God we serve. What a glorious God. Everybody in the room says amen, right? We are those people. Why do we know these truths? Why do we know this God? Why? Grace upon grace. And our God is an all good God. Kind God that saves people like us. So the question is, is which one are you going to be like? What response are you going to have? Are you going to reject like verse 32? Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Or are you going to receive? But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Aragopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What is our response to this great God? What's ours? God is the creator. He is the Lord. He is transcendent. He is independent. He is sustainer of all, creator of all, sovereign over all, made us to worship him, eminent and father of all through Adam. God requires repentance and belief in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a glimpse of your bigness. God, we recognize that apart from your grace, we are absolutely bound for eternal hell. God, forgive us for the countless times that we have sinned against you and not honored you and respected you and worshipped you as we should. Oh, Father, thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died in our place and rose from the dead and will come to judge both the living and the dead. We pray, Father, that our hearts and our minds will worship you today, tomorrow, and for eternity. Oh, Lord, when our hearts begin to stray, remind us, Call us through your word back to yourself. We love you, Father. We thank you that you have not only made us your offspring through Adam, but you have made us your adopted children through Christ. Oh, you are good. You are so kind to wretched sinners like us. We worship you. We praise you alone.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.